Hello, 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 and welcome, friends, to the very first episode of How That Works. My name is Xavier Saunderson, and this is the podcast where I discuss all the wonders and curiosities that our world has to offer. Now, before we get started, I thought I should say a few things about myself. I am currently 19 and living in the southern of Africa, and I am also a student currently studying IT. That's all I'll say for now. I'll be sharing more nuggets as this journey continues. One thing I will say is this, this podcast is not going to be your traditional podcast. Too many times I've listened to podcasts and felt like it's a lecture I missed somewhere in my life. We're not doing that here, no, no. I want this to feel like a conversation you and I are having and that afterwards you can feel like you actually learned something that you can bring up in a discussion someday. So come along friends for the journey as I delve into all things tech, science, nature and history. Grab your favorite cup of tea, relax on the couch, or enjoy a run, because we're about to get curious. It is indeed another fantastic day to be asking, how does that work? In this very first episode, I want to take things back to basics, go back to where it all began. I want to share with you my thoughts and look at some of nature's greatest scientists and engineers that have existed for more than a couple of centuries. I'm going to be looking at everything from playing hide-and-seek with an octopus to the perfect shape of hexagons that bees have given us. I'm going to explore how nature's smallest workers have helped us attain some of our greatest achievements. Let's get straight into it. The very first thought I want to share with you are cephalopods, better known as the octopus. And I want to discuss how they use camouflage techniques to hide in plain sight and how humans are also applying this form of biomimicry. To understand this, I first want to talk about the cephalopod itself. So, to quote Severus Snape, The mind is a complex and many-layered thing. Yes, that is my best impression. This is very much the case for the cephalopod. While it may not have as many layers as your mind, it does have three very distinct layers. Starting from the outside, we have the chromatophore layer, an iridophore layer, and the lucifophore layer. I hope I'm saying that right. The chromatophore layer consists of spots of pigments and inks. The iridophore layer bends and bounces the light in all directions, and the lucifophore layer acts like a mirror for the two above it. Twice the power it would seem. Let's get curious and break it all down. So the first layer, or the chromatophore layer, literally means bearer of color. This layer is actually an organ that is filled with pigments. How friggin' awesome is that? Imagine for a second you had a tattoo under your skin, and whenever you felt like it, you could just change the shape or color of your tattoo. It's pretty much what this layer can do. Anyhow, this layer is actually only limited to yellow, red, and brown. This would make sense though, as a cephalopod spends most of its time clinging to the ocean floor and rocks. This is all good and well, but how does that actually work? Ah, good. You're getting curious. I like it. This is going to make much more sense if I use everyday objects to explain. Think of a chromatophore cell as different colored balloons. Then you have radial muscles attached to all sides of this balloon. When these muscles are relaxed, the balloon is all deflated and shriveled up. Nobody likes a deflated and shriveled balloon. Some color exists, but it's real, real, real difficult to see it. 
When threatened or trying to camouflage, nerves send signals to these radial muscles and the balloon expands from all sides. All at once, the chromatophore is a visible spot of pigment. But now this is where it gets interesting. There are millions of these cells all packed close together and a cephalopod can control each one of these individually. This means that based on the surrounding it's trying to mimic, certain spots can be washed out white, a mottled brown, or even a solid patch of red to mimic an anemone. If I had this power, I'd want to be something like Violet from The Incredibles. I don't know, that's just me. There is, however, one disadvantage that they suffer. There's always a catch with these things. Because they only have three, the three colors, they are limited to three different patterns of camo, camouflage, if you will. These being uniform, mottled, and disruptive. Uniform gives them one solid color, while mottled uses splotches of multiple different colors. And finally, disruptive is kind of the state of how you wake up in the morning, all confused and can't decide if you want to go for a run or not, even though you know it's good for you. Moving on to all the shiny stuff this creature has to offer, we now look at the iridophore layer, literally meaning all things rainbows. Not really, it actually means bearer of light, but rainbows just sounds cooler. Much like its cousin above, the chromatophore layer, this layer also consists of organs, which you guessed it, are the iridophore organs. These organs are surrounded by many, many stacks of plates of chitin. Now, chitin is translucent and surprisingly quite tough. It can also be found in fungi, fish scales, and shells of crustaceans. So now it makes sense that some seashells have a shimmering effect when the sun shines on it. That's a whole lot of S's. Nature likes to borrow, it would seem. Back to topic. When light strikes the surface of chitin, some of it reflects, and some of it actually passes through. The light that passes through hits the lower layers and reflects, and then some passes through. This process repeats itself over and over and over throughout all of the plates. All the light that reflects combines through a process that scientists call thin film interference. To give you a basic idea, Think of the old 3D movies that needed blue and red glasses to watch them. Now you put on these glasses and it combines into one 3D image. To make it even simpler for you, this occurs in nature, kind of. This same effect can be seen when you blow soap bubbles and they land on a surface. Those multiple funky colored rainbows you see is a form of thin film interference. This is all I wanted to say about the iridophore layer because it's not really so important to the applications that humans have come up with so far. Now here's just a few interesting facts about the lucifer layer, because no man left behind, am I right? The lucifer layer are actually cells covered in rice-shaped reflective granules. What do you think scientists called them? Yes, they are called lusomes. You're getting good at this. Just like a disco ball, these cells are reflecting the light that got through all the chitin. Party at Nemo's an enemy, am I right? <laughs> So just like a disco ball, they don't actually change the light, they just reflect it. Now what's interesting is that the cephalopod doesn't actually have control of this layer like the other two. However, by controlling the top two, the lucifer layer can alter how much light reaches it. Kind of like looking at a disco ball through a keyhole or the entire door. Now you want to know how this works to the advantage of humans. Yeah, me too. So there are two guys, Jonathan Rossiter and Andrew Kahn at the University of Bristol, who have engineered this concept as accurately as possible. 
So how they did this is they actually went and developed an artificial chromatophore out of small devices they call dielectric elastomers. We'll call them DEs for this conversation. A DE consists of a thin rubberized membrane that gets sandwiched between two super flexible electrodes. The electrodes get connected to a power supply and once you flip the switch, boom, it works. Electricity goes surging into the system and like electrodes do, they take on opposite charges and attract each other. This causes a squeezing to take place of the rubber membrane between them. So now to create the color changing effect, they took thin black discs of rubber and attached the electrodes. You have a small spot, apply electricity, and you have a big spot, says Rosetta. Expand many of them and your skin suddenly looks like it's darkening. So now if we could integrate this into clothing, you could potentially achieve camouflage, not to be confused with invisibility. I see you Harry Potter fans. So while this may have obvious military applications, it's being explored more commercially. Imagine for a second you're a biker or a runner in a very busy area and you accidentally put on a dark top. At the flick of a switch, you can suddenly have a Barbie pink or neon orange shirt to be more visible. Or let's say you're going on a three-day hike when you get lost in the mountains. Your jacket could change color to make it easier for rescuers to find you. At the moment, the research is slow in this field, and it is mostly university students who do research papers or engineers playing around in the lab. It is, however, too cool to think that someday soon, this could actually become a reality. Now let's move on to the next little creature I want to discuss with you. And so the curiosity grows. I want to now talk about bees and how they are the greatest engineers we have to date. Buzz, buzz. So a flash fact for you, I'm actually allergic to bees. I've been allergic since I was nine and surprisingly haven't been stung since that age. Buzzing along then. The question as to why honeybees adapted to building their hives with hexagonal cells has been debated ever since a debate was a thing. Darwin actually theorized that through natural selection, there was an economy of wax. What's interesting is actually the ratio at which they need to consume this wax. The honeybee needs to consume just close to 3.6 kilograms of honey, or one, 8 pounds for my American friends, to produce half a kilogram of wax. That's about 1 pound. Those bees pretty much just eat for a living. Can you imagine? Eat all day and produce building material. Where's that sign-up sheet at? So why did they choose hexagons? Well, to know that, we need to get to the bee line of truth to discuss this. See what I did there? I know, pretty lame. Charles Darwin actually had something to say about all this buzz, and it went something like this. He must be a dull man who can examine the exquisite structure of honeycomb, so beautifully adapted to its end, without enthusiastic admiration. So, around the time of 36 BC, a scholar by name Marcus Terentius Varro wrote some stuff about this math problem. It was only later theorized as the honeycomb conjecture. It stated that compared to other shapes such as triangles or squares, the hexagon inscribed or drawn in a circular figure encloses the greatest amount of space. Loosely translated from ancient Babel, we get the hexagon is the most space efficient. Hit fast forward and we're now in 2019 and we have Thomas Hales who finally proved the conjecture. Only took 2,000 odd years, but we got there. So Thomas went ahead and said, a hexagonal honeycomb 
is the best way to fit the most honey in a larger volume while spending less energy building a structure to contain it. He's essentially stating that Darwin was right. Not only is the hexagon shape space efficient, when stacked together in an offset arrangement, they have six short walls around each other, which gives the structure a high compression strength. And going even further with this, the hexagon shape is excellent at dissipating heat. Wouldn't want your hive melting like an ice cream in the middle of summer, now would we? In one structure, the bees have combined efficiency, strength, and controlled heat loss. That's just fantastic. Now let's say that you wanted to cover a certain area of flooring in laminate flooring that only came in hexagons and triangles, which occupies the most space with the least number of tiles. It's going to be the hexagons. Because see, if we break a hexagon into smaller triangles, you can actually fit six triangles into one hexagon. Take a triangle the same size as the hexagons and you can only fit four triangles of equal size into one triangle. You can head over to asknature.org forward slash honeycomb structure is space efficient and strong to get a better idea of what I'm talking about. So seeing as the bees have unlocked this secret, how can humans borrow this? We've actually used hexagons in lightweight building materials, flexi panels for bridges, sound absorption, tissue engineering, and even building better surfboards. The possibilities are endless for hexagons. So for this conversation of how humans have used this concept, I want to look at one specific example. And this one comes from Italian architect Gianluca Santososo. What a second name. I'll call him Gian. Sit back and open your ears because it's about to get interesting. So Gian set out to merge nature's force of efficiency with our human ingenuity. Codename The Hive Project was his idea for residential beehive housing. He explained that the idea came when he read up about the honeycomb conjecture and how honeybees are so space efficient. Now, if I was to ask you to draw the most basic house you could right now, here's what you would draw. Starting with the vertical line, you would draw a second vertical line to the left or right of the first one. After that, you're going to draw an incomplete triangle as the roof for your house. Super basic house, right? Wrong. Draw another incomplete triangle on the underside of your house. What do you have? A freaking hexagon. This is essentially how the houses would look from the outside. The bottom layer would be sunk in, and every layer stacked on top would be viewed as a full honeycomb or hexagon. Just like bees are social insects, humans are social creatures too, and we should be able to thrive together in a community like this. I'm already sold on hexagon houses, what more do you need? Oh, but it gets better. Because of the shape of the hexagon and how we can adapt it, there are actually numerous possibilities we can add or take away. In the graphics I saw, it was illustrated that rainwater and grey water are all collected and recycled back into the hexagon you live in. They even went so far as to install water-saving fittings and composite toilets to reduce water consumption. Let there be light, you say? Solar panels are easily installed on the roof of your hexagon to provide clean and efficient energy all year long. So while this may not be as exciting as the Burj Khalifa or the Empire State Building, it's an exciting step towards sustainable and efficient living. And this is all thanks to our friend, the bee. And that is all the talking I will be doing for today. I hope you learned something with me. Turns out curiosity didn't kill the cat after all. So this last segment is what I like to call housekeeping. 
nobody is in trouble, so don't freak out. I just want to level with you and ask for your support, maybe hear from you guys. First of all, thank you so, so, so much for listening to my podcast. The support is greatly appreciated. If you want to follow me on the social places, you can head over to my Instagram that has all my social links in it. Find me over at how underscore that underscore works. If you enjoyed this episode, please do consider buying me a coffee in the description of the episode. It lets me know that you appreciate me and this show and that I can keep doing this for you. Everybody helps in the end. You have been a great listener. So here's to you, kid. I will catch you again in next week's episode. But until then, stay always curious.